0: Rathbone's Look Forward series with Andrea Catherwood. Welcome to the Rathbone's Look Forward series. We're speaking to some of the great thinkers, journalists and writers of our time, focusing on the future of our changing world. My guest today is the journalist and special correspondent Alan Liddell of the BBC on the very topical subject of Truth and Lies. From Baghdad to Johannesburg to Moscow, Alan has been on the front line of changing world events. He reported on the breakup of Yugoslavia and the Gulf War, the aftermath of the genocide in Rwanda, and more recently, the BBC's coverage of the Scottish independence referendum. So, distinguishing truth from lies is a challenge that Alan knows all too well. Alan, I'd like to take you back at the beginning here to talk about how you ever got into war reporting. I I know that I've been asked this question myself many times, but it's a very specific type of reporting and you really need to want to do it. Why did you...
1: I never expected to be a war correspondent. It didn't occur to me that uh, I would ever have the opportunity, certainly not a war correspondent in Europe. Mm. We thought that war had been abolished in Europe after 1945. But when the opportunity arose to go to a war, I absolutely seized it. Whatever it is that... I've become a little interested in what it is that draws the young uh, to war. I never wanted to fight a war, some young men in particular do but I wanted to be in it I wanted to observe it I wanted to be surrounded by it because I I had this notion that war probably brings out not just the worst in people but also the best in people as well and I think there's some truth in that and so my first experience of kinetic uh, shooting war was accidental. I went to Romania in 1989, Christmas 1989, expecting it to be another sort of joyous Czechoslovakia-style velvet revolution, and suddenly found myself, yeah, suddenly found myself lying in a darkened room, surrounded by a gun battle outside, and uh, whispering into my microphone, comment, trying to comment on on what was going on. So. And and that's where I saw for the first time people who had been killed in war or badly injured, and I remember one one episode in particular that a schoolroom had been turned into a field hospital, and there was a young man who had been shot in the neck, and he was lying on a mattress with a with a rubber sheet, and the weight of his body had made an indentation in the mattress, and he was being kept alive by a ventilator, so his his. Uh, his chest was rising and falling at the pace of the ventilator, but the the indentation in the mattress was filling up with his blood. And I I noticed that his elbow was dipping in and out of the blood as his chest rose and fell. He was already dead, but he was being kept breathing. And I thought, that's a bloodbath. That is a literal bloodbath. And it's a term we only use metaphorically, really. And I remember thinking, I'll never use that term again, because I've seen the real thing. And I was drawn to it like a... I was fascinated by it, and I went from there to immerse myself in other people's conflicts for years and years. I
0: think it's an interesting thing, isn't it, that we... I I think I remember thinking, this is the place in the world today where the most interesting thing is happening, where the most amazing thing and the most awful thing, perhaps, is happening. I remember um, a a friend and colleague of ours, Jeremy Bowen, saying that um, we often meet people on the worst day of their lives... And I think we've all, we've, you know, we've both felt that. There is something, it's, it's, it's an awful thing, but it's also an incredible privilege to be there and witness world-changing events. And it imposes
1: a special responsibility because you're asking people at the worst moment of their life to trust you with their story. And you're entering a covenant with them, I think, or I came to understand this. Uh, and you have a duty to do well by them and to be fair. And people want to tell their story. There's yes, a, they do. A friend of mine was a, was a seven months in a in a, one of those Bosnian concentration camps, not knowing whether he was going to get out alive. And he says, in retrospect, he divided his that period of his life up, that nightmare period, into two chunks. The, fir- the first chunk was before the International Committee of the Red Cross had visited and r- written their names down in a log, and afterwards. And he said once. Somebody had asked me my name and written it down on a piece of paper and taken it away. I thought, the world knows my story now. And before that, we thought we'd simply been disappeared. We'd disappeared off the face of the earth. So this this urge to have one story out there seems to be a, a, a primary need, like the need for food and shelter.
0: I absolutely agree that people want to tell their stories and sometimes the most awful stories. And they feel, perhaps in a way by doing that, that they are putting on record the truth. Uh, And that brings us, I think, to this the kind of crux of what we're doing or what we're hoping to do in war zones, which is to tell the truth, to tell the world, to tell the outside world the truth. And perhaps this does sound rather naive looking back on it, but I think I thought that by telling people the truth, we could change the world.
1: Yeah, I think that is... uh... A delusion that you carry with you around, and I certainly carried it, with, carried it with me for a long time. There's a great quote from the great 20th century war correspondent Martha Gellhorn, where she talks about this, about believing. She said, When I was young, I believed in the perfectibility of man and in progress, and thought of journalism as a guiding light. It was my job to show the world what was going on and the world would demand the saving action. She said, I think I must have thought of a public opinion as though it was some kind of solid force, almost like a, a tornado always ready to blow in the side of the angels. And I think we all had that. And it takes a lot of hard, difficult experience for you to realise that all those articles, all those broadcasts, all those two ways on the Today programme, all those pieces on the nine o'clock news are not going to change anything but they're still worth it for their own sake.
0: Do you think they're really not going to change anything though? I mean they do sometimes change public opinion. I would say that a lot of the work that you did and I remember so much of it you know growing up and as a a young reporter and and then eventually of course I met you when we were out in some of these places later on but I can remember hearing those words and I I think often things that you did and, and other journalists ended up Influencing politicians, putting pressure on politicians. So, I mean, surely the truth does change the world sometimes.
1: Yes, I think it does. And I think at the heart of my motivation was the idea that there was something called the truth and that it was knowable, it was discoverable, and that through the privileges of my trade, I could communicate that once I'd discovered it to the public in general. And I sort of believed in that as a kind of... And I I felt it was a kind of protection, that because I came from this country, was part of a community of nations, a family of nations that had securely entrenched institutions of democracy and the rule of law, it somehow protected me in places where those institutions and practices did not exist. Uh, And this pursuit of the truth is very important when the idea that the truth is there and it's your job to go and find it it sounds a bit sanctimonious to me at this stage in my life, but it was a very powerful driver of not just my own, my own work and activity and sense of purpose, but most of us.
0: And I agree. And I think the thing is that the truth sometimes is quite knowable in a small way. So we're not talking about maybe the motivation of a dictator, but actually the effect of a bomb you can know that, you can go and you can count it and you can see it. And I'm struck by a particular um, instance, which I know you'll remember very well, when you were working in Baghdad and you found out uh, you were a a witness to a situation which really wasn't what that group of nations that you talk about, the UK and elsewhere, wanted to hear. Hmm.
1: That's right. And I went with Jeremy Boyd, actually, whom you mentioned earlier. Um, One morning uh, we were told that a civilian air raid shelter... Had been struck. This is 1991, so a really a different age, but I'll come on to that in a second. A civilian air raid shelter had been struck by so-called bunker-busting bombs, and there were lots of dead civilians. And we were taken there, and when we got there, it was one of those air raid shelters in Baghdad that had been built for the possibility of a nuclear attack from Iran. And so, people in there thought it was impregnable. And they were pulling the bodies out when we got there. They'd just begun, and only a handful of the hundreds of people came out of there alive. So we were seeing these, almost overwhelmingly, women and children, little children, four, five, six years old, lying curled on their sides as though they died instantly in their sleep, um, and the allies said it was a, it was a military command bunker, and we waded through it in the days that came, the the, the days that followed, and it was it wasn't a military, it was dodgy intelligence, uh, it was a civilian air raid shelter, and the Iraqis said it was, there were. 2000 dead now i went on the air and described what i saw and unknown to me there were howls of protest and outrage and in uh, in the uk and there were some people in parliament saying that we should be cr- criminalized for doing uh, reporting from the enemy capital people were saying would you have reported from berlin during the holocaust uh, i don't think it was comparable uh, would you have reported from the gates of the the, the jewish ghetto in warsaw Uh, in the 1940s, and those comparisons were being made. But I thought then, and I still think that it's always, it is almost always, almost without exception, better that the public should know reliably and verifiably what has happened than that they should be, than that that it should be covered up so that you can project whatever you want to see onto it. Now, there was some dispute about the number of dead. Marie Colvin and I went to the morgue and counted the dead with... Our own eyes, and we got to three hundred and something, and uh, and so we, we we could close down myth making and propaganda making back then. But back then, nobody had a Twitter account to say it was a false flag operation to discredit the allied, but uh, war war. So we're in a different world. I, I, it's an interesting example because it still seems relatively recent to me. It was in my working life, but uh, it belonged to a different age when, before the age when. You know, uh, social media had weaponized fake news
0: and indeed, in an age when actually there was only maybe one or two or four correspondents who were able to bring that news to the rest of the world, citizens weren't journalists, and they weren't able to communicate that information so actually, what you said perhaps and and Marie Colvin, who you mentioned uh, the famous Sunday Times journalist who was tragically killed in syria when that when those people were able to tell the world, you were much more trusted perhaps and also your, your, your opinion, your verifiable facts were the only facts out there. It wasn't, as we've heard recently, the idea that you can choose your own facts. There wasn't that option at the time because there were only a few people perhaps, you know, telling us what those facts were. I think as you've alluded to there, fake news obviously is, is nothing new propaganda has been there since the beginning of time and indeed you mentioned uh, Nazi Germany and we remember Lord Hoho who was you know discussing and, and you know creating his own propaganda at the time i wonder when you think of fake news now why is it that it's become a buzzword when we know that there's been propaganda in every war and indeed truth being the first casualty of war, there have been lies since the beginning of time.
1: What's uh, very instructive about reading that uh, Martha Gellhorn essay that I quoted from uh, a few minutes ago is that she she had identified the public appetite for lies uh, back in the 1950s. And she said, it's become clear that the public doesn't always want truth. The public doesn't want unpalatable truths or difficult truths. It would prefer a nourishing lie, as she put it, an appetizing lie. So it was true back then. And I think the difference now is that there was at least a shared public reality. During the days of apartheid, there was a debate in Britain about Nelson Mandela, whether he should be in jail or not. Most people thought he should be released. But some people said, no, this guy's a terrorist. He should be in jail. But nobody was asking whether Nelson Mandela really existed or whether he was a fiction created by anti-apartheid people who wanted to discredit white supremacy. And that's the world we're in now, that the shared public reality uh, within which we argue and dispute and rage at each other and take issue with each other and, and in the end settle our differences in a civic, peaceful way. That space is is vanishingly small now. It's dis- almost disappeared completely in America. It's absolutely gone in Russia and in Turkey and elsewhere. Um, and it's, and it's, it's diminishing in the UK as well. The UK, though, still has publicly reg- regulated broadcasters, the BBC, ITN, Sky News, Channel 4. These are very high-quality news sources, but they're not high-quality by accident. They're high-quality because there's a set of publicly legislated regulations that govern what they do and the standards to which they're meant to aspire. And we have to ask the question now whether a similar set of regulations is needed for the, te- the for the new world that technology has opened up.
0: I want to bring you on to Russia. You were a BBC special correspondent in Russia and you, you covered actually a very different, different time because uh, President uh, Boris Yeltsin was in power at that stage. I've travelled to Russia and, and worked there um, on occasions, but I never really felt I got under the skin of Russia. I didn't really understand um, the Russian mentality. And I wonder if you could shed some light looking at current events on what people in Russia perceive when they, when they look at their own news, when they look at the, their, their newspapers and their television coverage. How do they, what's their relationship with that? And, and do they think that that's the truth
1: yeah, I wouldn't claim to be an expert on Russia, no. I was, But I was there at a very revealing time because it was the time when the westernising, democratising experiment collapsed. And it collapsed in, a, in an atmosphere of public um, disillusion and humiliation. And I think humiliation has a, plays a very important part in shaping public opinion, not just in Russia, but in other parts of the world including the Middle East. And I remember standing in a queue when the ruble collapsed. There was a a collapse of emerging markets and it had a knock-on effect on the ruble. And I was in a queue, people were queuing to change their savings into hard currency, into dollars. And as they were queuing, they could monitor the, the board that showed what the ruble was worth. And it was falling, falling, falling the whole time. And there was a couple at the back of the queue who were watching their life savings disappear. And I stopped to talk to them and the woman was in tears. And she said, this happened to us in the early 90s as well. We retired, we had a pot of money to see us through our retirement. And when the, when the inflation came in the early 90s, our savings couldn't buy a loaf of bread. And now it's happened to us again. Should we went back to the Arctic Circle to take a job we didn't want in a place where we didn't want to live, to save some money for our retirement? And we've just watched it disappear on that monitor there. And they came to associate capitalism and democracy with crime, with a big trick to deprive them of everything they'd worked for. And they put their faith in... To some extent, Russia reverted to type, and they put their faith in a strong man who seemed to articulate... The values, their, their gut instinct values, and, and in particular suspicion of the Western model, and so I think the, 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 we the, we used to say that Russia Russian history is punctuated by a, a succession of Westernizing czars, Peter the Great. Westernizing czars always come to grief in Russian history. It mm. never works. And we, we used to say that Yeltsin was the latest westernizing czar, and the, the wheels came off that westernizing uh, uh, for all sorts of reasons that are, that are well known now. But, but the public mood was very, very bit, bitterly uh, angry that they had been conned, that they bought into the idea that Russia could be a democratic Western-style democracy, and that that enterprise was used to trick
0: them. And that's a really interesting way of looking at where we are today and actually a way in to where we are today with President Putin. Obviously, there's ongoing investigations at the moment into the role uh, that Russia may have played in the American elections and uh, and indeed the potential um, of hacking well beyond Hillary Clinton's campaign. Do you think that, as Hillary Clinton suggests, this is the start of the cyber Cold War and what do you think Russia feels about these accusations? It certainly feels very much that it's, it's under attack at the moment. What does that do to the spirit in Russia?
1: I think it's, uh, yeah, one of the things I tried to grapple with and understand when I was living in Russia was how the, the changes in the Western world looked from a Russian point of view. The expansion of NATO, the expansion of the EU. Uh, onto territories that the Russians, rightly or wrongly, had come to think of as their sphere of influence. The carefully colour-coordinated revolutions that swept the r- periphery of Russia. What is what the next one going to be? And it's very easy to argue in Russia that the is always chosen by the CIA or British intelligence. And there was a sense... Russians did feel, and it's not just manufactured by Vladimir Putin, Russians did feel that they were increasingly being surrounded. And we had a colleague in the, in the Moscow bureau, uh, a driver, who remembered as a child seeing German soldiers at the gates of Moscow in the 1940s. And that collective memory that Russia was invaded by a Western power mm-hmm. and Moscow was nearly taken uh, that collective memory is still there, but It's it 's within living memory, and it helps shape public opinion it 's not simply that Vladimir Putin is a brilliant propagandist. The seedbed of, of these sentiments are, is, al- is already there in russian, in the russian experience and I think if you look at the, if you look at the walls of the kremlin it 's interesting to me that the Bolsheviks, when they came to power in one thousand nine hundred and seventeen very quickly moved the capital city back from St. Petersburg or Leningrad as it became to Russia, much more. That is siege architecture.
0: Yes, that, and when that, you that, 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 when you when you drive past that in Moscow, when you really do feel like you are in the heart of, as you say, almost a, a medieval castle.
1: Yeah, you are not looking at the world through a beautiful bay window on the Baltic Sea; no. you are looking at looking at the world from behind defensive walls, and it reflects the defensive position to which Russians have 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 retreated in the context of. The expansion of the West, which is what happened in the years after 1991.
0: In, in terms of truth, Russia is looking at the world through uh, through a different lens. But this is its own truth. You know, you talked about uh, the, the Germans on the, on the verge of taking Moscow. And that is a verifiable truth. When you look at the Russian media, um, the news sources that Russian people get their news from... How much of that is truth and how much of it is propaganda?
1: I think it's become impossible to know what's true in Russia. I think the... Uh, the uh, obviously, when I was there, there was a, a very strong, vibrant, uh, diverse media. Um, people could say anything, people could watch anything, read anything. That's cl- that's closed down now. It's all very centralised and very controlled. And so I don't think it can be trusted. Um, but But it's... And and so now there's a famous book uh, written by a Western journalist called Nothing is True and Everything is Possible. And that's where we are now. It is simply impossible to know what is true. So you can choose what is true. And this is not exclusive to Russia. This is happening everywhere. You can now make your own reality. You can buy whatever truths you want off the supermarket shelves of social media. And, And increasingly nothing is true and everything is possible. So it is possible. It would be possible to argue now that Nelson Mandela didn't really exist. No, nobody's seen him since the 1960s. Of course he doesn't exist. It's all got up by people who want to end white supremacy in South Africa. That would be where we would be now if, uh, if, that, if we'd had social media back then.
0: We've talked a lot uh, in the news recently about Cambridge Analytica um, and Christopher Wiley, the whistleblower, um, and the data that was used and the relationship with Russia. But perhaps if we could just take it back a little, one step further... What do you think that the motives are for Russia to really want to get involved in the US? Is it a Putin power play? Is it about manipulating truth? What's what's the thought behind it?
1: Do have, you know? I have no idea. I have no idea. And, of course, it's all very deniable. Yes. Um, so uh, perhaps but, just
0: the ability to do it that didn't exist in the past.
1: It's certainly true that uh, Putin wants to re-establish Russia as a global power. That is a strategic objective. He famously said that the collapse of the Soviet Union, the dissolution of the Soviet Union, was the biggest tragedy of his lifetime. Uh, And that that is very popular in Russia. The return of Russia to its rightful place in the world plays very well with Russian public opinion. And so uh, the discrediting of Western institutions, the weakening of the EU... The Putin circles would have been delighted by Brexit because it weakens the EU. Um, trying to bring U- Ukraine, Poland, Hungary back into the Russian fold, attracting attracting those parts the, 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 of Europe back into the Russian sphere of influence, offering to build a nuclear power station in Hungary um, again, some way of pulling pulling those parts of Eastern Europe back into the I- into the um, Bailiwick of Russian influence.
0: We are living in the most extraordinary times. The thought that a US election was potentially manipulated, whether it was or not, by a foreign power is just such an extraordinary concept that it sounds like a Hollywood movie and one that if it had come out in the 80s or 90s or, or, or the last decade, we would have found interesting, throwaway, almost too crazy to be true. And yet here we are living in that reality. It's a hugely difficult time for truth, isn't it?
1: It is. It's, uh, we are in a world where nothing is true and everything is possible. And it seems to me plain that we, as a citizenry, have got to get on top of this. We've got to learn to distinguish between news sources that are credible and authoritative and have a track record, but which sometimes get it wrong and sometimes make mistakes and sometimes see things through the prism of their own cultural biases as well on the one hand, and news sources that deliberately set out to deceive and uh, manipulate on the other. And how you do that when there is such a clear public appetite for the consumption of lies, useful lies, lies that um, advance your own political agenda, your own view of the world, is, is the big, one of the big challenges of our time.
0: And one of the big issues that we've got is that we have verifiable evidence that People enjoy opinions. Now, you worked in your career for the BBC and we spend an awful lot of time making sure that as individuals, as individual correspondents, presenters, you don't show your opinions. You don't show your own personal feelings to an extent. And you certainly make sure that you're impartial on big issues. And actually, what we've learned is that listeners, readers and viewers like opinions, they like people to be opinionated, they like to hear what they really think. Fox News in America is incredibly popular because people talk about what they think and they show very, very strong opinions either way. And I wonder how how mainstream media tries to cope with that idea that actually a lot of our our, our customers, if you like, actually would like to hear opinions and we deal in facts.
1: Yeah, but facts aren't self-selecting. Um, facts uh, have to be chosen. Uh, And which which facts you choose to highlight on any given day will reveal a set of assumptions about the world. And you have to think about that. The question of what we balance with what is also very important. I mean, when... Way back when I was uh, reporting from the former Yugoslavia, I used to argue that uh, if there are two competing claims, if you go into a bar and there are two men arguing, one, one's arguing 2 plus 2 equals 4, and the other one's arguing with equal conviction and passion that 2 plus 2 equals 6, the easiest thing in the world is to say the truth lies somewhere in between. Well, it doesn't. It doesn't. And you've got to, well, part of your job, I think, is to make a, a judgment on behalf of the viewer or listener or the reader about the quality of evidence upon which assertions are based. And the quality of evidence... Upon, it's an extreme case, I admit, it's a model case, but the quality of evidence upon which the assertion 2 plus 2 equals 4 is based is different to the quality of evidence supporting the competing case. So, so we you've got to be careful what you balance with what. And I, we found this all the time in, in former Yugoslavia, that a credible but strictly unproven claim was balanced with an absurd claim. And when you do that, you're imposing a subjectivity. It's the easiest thing in the world. On the one hand, this lot say that, but on the other, that lot say something else. It's lazy, it doesn't uh, enlighten, it doesn't um, inform. And you've got to make a judgment, you've got to make a call sometimes.
0: And yet, indeed, that is something that the BBC and other mainstream media in this country have been accused of. You know, you're talking about it happening in former Yugoslavia, but much more recently, indeed, in Brexit, it's something that they've been accused of. Uh, Uh, David Cameron's uh, former press secretary and also an editor of uh, the News at 10, uh, Craig Oliver, wrote a book about this, talking about this idea of balance and impartiality. Impartiality, obviously the cornerstone of all regulated media in, in the UK, BBC being the prime example. And yet, when we talk about, for example, climate change, we now don't actually feel at the BBC that we have to balance it equally we don't feel that if we have somebody on to talk about ice caps melting we have to go and find somebody who thinks that climate change doesn't exist and yet um, throughout something like Brexit which clearly it has been a big issue for the UK in terms of fake news there have been allegations on both sides that actually when for example a, a verifiable fact like Turkey joining the EU or not and how that would not happen was put out on one side nobody actually felt the need to, uh, to say actually that's not going to happen and so in a way the the balance was skewed and uh, and, uh, and that that's, that that fact goes uh, you know towards towards um, the remainers camp but actually they went the other way as well it's difficult for the BBC. It's, a, it's, a, it's something that they are going to have to deal with, isn't it?
1: It's the same with the, with the um, quality newspapers in America. The, the challenge they face now is how to call out lies and manipulation and falsehood without appearing to place yourself on one side of the partisan divide. And the thing I say to my Remainer friends who think the BBC was too uh, balanced... In, in in balancing the claims of the brexiters with the claims of the remainers mm-hmm. is you talk about fake news go to Oldham go to Hull the people there know the big truths of their lives we talk about post truth that people people in those communities know what the big truths that dominate their lives are and you know what they're not truths that featured very prominently in the in the national discourse that was mediated by me and my colleagues
0: and this is to do with the palability of truth, right? If we don't think that the truth that somebody really has is, unpala- is is very palatable, there is a danger that it gets swept under the carpet. In fact, you could suggest that, um, the, the, you know, for three or four terms, that's what uh, both New Labour and the Tories did with the whole issue of immigration.
1: I think what the American election and the Brexit vote revealed was that the mainstream media, if you like... Um, And the left liberal parties in both of those countries, New Labour and the Democrats, had tended to treat the politics of class grievance as something old-fashioned, anti-aspirational, essentially reactionary and a bit racist.
0: Well, it's, uh, it's like Gordon Brown, isn't it? Uh, and Gillian Duffy, when he famously had his mic on in uh, the 2010 election and uh, she talked to him and he called her a bigoted woman. It was, a, it was, it was that, one of those moments that, that crystallised, moment yeah. Mm, that that crystallised the problem. His core supporters. That would have been somebody who'd voted Labour all her life. And he just didn't like the fact that that was a woman who had different opinions from him and he didn't find them palatable. But that, as you say, that was her truth.
1: And it, it is odd for, for for that to have happened to Gordon Brown because when he was fighting the uh, Scottish independence referendum, one of the things that annoyed other people in the in the pro union camp was that he wouldn't join the cross party alliance called Better Together, and everybody they, the Labour people in Better Together said, "Oh, that's Gordon being an old Labour tribalist." But actually, he had a he had a feel for working class sentiment in Scotland, and he could see the danger in. Alistair Darling and others standing shoulder to shoulder with con- members of the Conservative Party defending the Union. And he could say, that's easy to defend in West Edinburgh, where Alistair Darling is a, 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 an MP. Not so easy to do that in my constituency, which is solidly working class. And he, his judgment on that was right, because what happened as a result of Labour and the Tories and the Lib Dems all standing shoulder to shoulder is that the solid working class base in Glasgow and Dundee and elsewhere switched to the SNP almost overnight and 40, 50 years of Labour supremacy in Scotland sort of came to an end in one election. And Gordon Brown had a sense of that, which makes it all the more surprising to me that he should have made that mistake and misread what Gillian Duffy was saying to him. But but you're right, it's one of those moments where a big truth becomes apparent in a small episode.
0: I want to talk a little bit about social media because one of the things that uh, transpired from the whole Cambridge Analytical Facebook debacle is just how willing we are to give our innermost thoughts to complete strangers. You know, there was a, a survey. I mean, the, the whole reason that this data was compiled was because people clicked on a survey that they were quite happy to do. Um, they weren't getting paid for it. There was no particular... They, they, were, they weren't getting much from it. But they were actually prepared to share their details. And we, as a, as, as a, as a world since social media has arrived, have been incredibly open about an awful lot of our details. It's a strange thing. It's an interesting thing. that We talked earlier, actually, about the idea that often when something really dreadful has happened, we are prepared to go and talk on camera about perhaps, you know, I've, I've had situations where somebody has lost their husband that day, a few hours before, and they're prepared to come and tell you, and they want to do that. It's a strange thing about people that we're actually very happy to share an awful lot of intimacies that we possibly never realised was possible. we mm. were going to do that. Um, do you think that that's something that is going to change after Cambridge Analytica? Do you see that as a watershed moment?
1: I've closed my Facebook account. I'm not. trying don't trust it anymore. Um, I think. It, I think it is a watershed moment. Uh, I think we will become much more savvy about social media. We'll look back on this period that's just, that we've just lived through, the, the early years of internet usage and social media, as, as a period of great naivety about the malign uses to which social media can be put. But there are great positive uses as well. I, one of my early revelations was I was sent to uh, Liverpool to do a story about um, the campaign for the, justice for the Hillsborough, the 96 who died in Hillsborough. And what had happened there, they'd been, they'd been campaigning for years and years to get access to a set of cabinet papers that were was, that was still being kept secret. And a famous comedian and Liverpool supporter tweeted support for the campaign to get those cabinet papers. And suddenly a petition that had been running for months and had seven or 8,000 signatures got a 100,000 in five days. And that unlocked the key, that 100,000 petition. So social media there put power in the hands of the just for the first time and gave them the chance to get access to the information they needed to pursue their case for justice. And it was successful. And so I'm excited about the, the liberating power of social media as well as, the, as, well as worried about its, about its potential for uh, polluting and corrupting um, public discourse.
0: So it it can do a lot of good, and we know that. And when we look at the Arab Spring and we look at the role that social media played um, and the ability to uh, to do something that was, was once the preserve only of trusted foreign correspondents, now everyone with a smartphone in their hand is able to essentially be a journalist. They're able to witness things. They are able to pass on information. Um, that has got huge potential, as you say, to be positive. It also is something that we need to be able to curate. And I don't know that we have the tools yet to do that.
1: No, we don't. And when people like you and I talk about it, it sounds like we're trying to preserve the old world. Mm, Indeed. But it is true that when television was invented and and people understood for the first time that this very powerful box would be in everybody's living room, in short order, the the authorities of the day said, we need to have some rules about what you can do with that. Um, It was a much more conservative time, 1940s, 1950s, but they they invented a set of regulations which largely are still in place and which make sure that television in the UK is not going to go the way of television in the United States and certainly not television in Russia. So my feeling is that those rules are, are, are valuable, uh, but you would expect that to be, wouldn't you? Because I'm a middle-aged bloke who's lived spent 30-odd years in the BBC and, and so I'm associated very much with that world. So it may be simply that I'm I'm out of touch with the new reality that this new ferociously democratic world of social media is simply untameable. Uh, And maybe it's wrong to expect it to be tamed. Maybe the citizenry itself has to learn to negotiate these new waters and to identify what it can really trust. That leaves open the possibility that people will trust the things they like. People will respond positively to views that confirm their existing biases.
0: So if we take something like uh, the recent horrific chemical weapons attack in Douma, um, outside of Damascus, in uh, 10 or 15 years ago, had there been a trusted face, a foreign correspondent that people knew standing there, right in the middle of it at the time, would that story have been more believed than it was today? Because it was barely reported than it was unreported, if you like. So it was almost had to be balanced that almost straight away there were accusations that it had never happened, that the Russians weren't involved, that these people were actors, that children had not been killed and that the ones that were foaming at the mouth were trained to do so. I mean, it's really quite horrific and difficult to to cope with as a foreign correspondent. Syria has changed. The nature of war has changed dramatically because foreign correspondents are targets in Syria. And I'd just like to elicit your opinion on all of that and how war reporting has changed uh, in the face of social media and indeed in the face of the changes to report the way that reporters are targeted in these areas. Yeah it made
1: me think that that attack made me think of an, an incident at which I was present 25 years ago in Bosnia when a mortar bomb fell on a market square in Sarajevo and killed 68 or 69 people in one instant it was the biggest single loss of life in Bosnia since the war had started Uh, and I was in the city that day the Serbs in the hills above their leader Radovan Karadzic said those bodies were not real, they were shop window mannequins or they were dead bodies that were already dead that had been brought from the hospital people who had died of illness Mm -hmm. or old age and we there was a bunch of us there, we were able to say not true absolutely emphatically, categorically not true. The evidence is absolutely overwhelming and we're here to collect it. And so that didn't really fly. There was another um, uh, story that was told that the Bosnians had bombed themselves and that was palatable. That was enjoyed by quite a few very senior people in the Western democracies who wanted to uh, um, cl- uh, take the wind out of the sails of the Americans who wanted to intervene militarily yes. in Bosnia. So, so, um, so some people leapt on that as a claim. But in the in the media environment that existed then, you could you could report those claims in a way that made it clear that they were very flimsy indeed. That's no longer possible. To get to your point about how war reporting has changed, it has changed enormously uh, since I stopped doing it. Um, I look back at the time, my, my years in, in war zones, and they seem relatively innocent now compared to what my colleagues today are facing. I never ran that very serious risk of kidnap, although I was twice picked up, once in Congo and once in once in Bosnia, where I realised that what had happened was that I'd been kidnapped, but it only lasted a few hours in each case, and I was rescued very quickly, luckily in both cases. Um, but I... No, it, it, it never nagged away at me that I was an asset being hunted. Um, and so I I was able to think about the purpose I was there for, gathering the news, making sense of it, finding other people's stories, and putting the question of my own safety to the back of my mind. Um, whereas I think if I were doing it now, that would corrode my self-confidence, that idea that there's somebody out there who wants to to... To seize me and my colleagues because we become assets in the in the market. Um, I think that's very psychologically much much more difficult to cope with than anything that I faced.
0: I mean, perhaps a turning point was when um, our friend and colleague Marie Colvin from the Sunday Times was killed because it does look like she was targeted in Syria. Yeah. Um, and certainly, uh, there's a lot of evidence to say that they knew exactly where she were. That what was that Assad's forces knew where that where she and, and um, her colleagues were do you think that it means that it's more easy it's easier for citizens on the ground who now have the ability through smartphones to take photographs and, and to disseminate information and it's less easy to corroborate because journalists simply aren't able to to go there as easily yeah. that it just it means that It's easier to pick on a range of facts and it's easier to discredit the facts when you don't know the source. a A lot of what journalists like, for example, AP and Reuters now do is try and verify all the information that they get in and give it some kind of credibility rather than sending their own journalists out there into the field. They spend a lot of time looking at all this information they get in and trying to work out what's true and what's not. It's a different way of doing journalism. It, it?
1: is a different way. But the plain truth is whole swathes of the world are out of bounds yeah. now to Western, Western journalists. Some go in anyway and get kidnapped or killed. Um, so, yeah, it is a completely different news-gathering environment as well as media landscape.
0: Yeah, I think maybe we were working and operating in a time and it was slightly a golden period because even though some of the most dangerous places that I ever was in Afghanistan or in, in Iraq, I mean, there were times when I felt that the crowd was hostile towards us. There were also times when I felt that whatever side of the divide I was on, I'd slightly be protected by being a journalist. I mean, those blue flat jackets with press that we had across them were a bit of a lucky charm often not always but often in those days yeah. um and that's changed fundamentally and it changes i think it, it i think maybe it's not something that people realize every day but it has changed the way that that we we understand the world and the, we understand about the ideas of truth because there aren't those verifiable sources all the time on the front line
1: that's right and it's and the means by which people can gather um, a constituency of opinion build a constitu- constituency of opinion that is absolutely convinced that the source is corrupt and so, and, and fake uh, is 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 that's there now. People can people can build that argument uh, and 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 weaponise it if you like uh, and undermine even the most credible of
0: sources. I want to talk a little bit about what we do about all of this, the fight back, if you like, because mainstream media isn't going to go away um, and. Perhaps this is some kind of blip. A sort of a, a, We'll look back and we'll think that, you know, 2015 to 2020 was the era of fake news, and then we got a handle on it. Do you think that's possible?
1: You know, our trade is, the history of it is punctuated by moral panics or existential crises. When radio was invented as a mass medium in the 1920s, the newspaper proprietors panicked and said, this is going to put our, us all up, we'll all go out of business. Newspapers will be redundant. And they went to the government and the government wrote into the BBC's first charter that the, the BBC radio service wasn't allowed to broadcast any news until I think at 8pm at night. And that was at the behest of the newspaper, a panicked newspaper industry. Well, the newspapers adapted to the existence of, of radio. When television came on stream in the 1940s and 50s, all the solid old radio hacks at Broadcasting House, went it sunk, sank into a terrible gloom and despondency because they thought nobody would want to listen to the radio when you had this magic box with pictures. Well, radio adapted, and radio is a, a strong stronger now than it's ever been. When, around 2003, the time of the Iraq invasion, um, the second Iraq war, um... Everybody was saying the built running order, the traditional bulletin, is history because now you can go live to uh, to anything
0: and the rolling news, rolling, uh, rolling we can news can was take everything. Take away the idea that we're going to have fundamental bulletins, so the ten o'clock news won't exist in five years' time. And pe- we yeah,
1: told, and yeah. people can choose their own running order, exactly. and to some exactly. extent that is true. People do choose their own running order on their mobile phones, on their uh, uh, other devices, and that so that world has come to pass. But there is still a public appetite for a mediated roundup of the day's events by a professional group of people that they trust, uh, which will start with what that group has decided as the most important or significant uh, events of the day, followed by the second most important and so on. So there is still an appetite there for a broadsheet newspaper, there's still an appetite for a radio current affairs programme, there's still an appetite for a built bulletin, just despite the fact that you can choose your own running order now uh, uh, online. So so traditional media adapt to a new media landscape, and I think we're in a, in a period of adaptation at the moment.
0: And actually, interestingly, there's still a huge uh, appetite for trusted sources, and I think many listeners will actually appreciate this, um, and it has been played out uh, with a, a lot of statistical analysis. So even Younger people who never actually watch BBC One or CNN, if they're looking at that, on, if they're looking at Facebook or they're looking at a Twitter account or an Instagram account, they will recognise BBC and CNN as trusted sources um, or the Times newspaper or the New York Times, even though they've never actually gone to the original model, if you like. So actually, those th- those brands... Are still have a very have a huge appetite and appeal uh, in in the cyber world. Yeah,
1: and they're just de- they they're just delivered mm. through different vehicles mm-hmm.
0: platforms. I mean, there are a lot of things I'm interested in. A couple of the ways that uh, that old news, if you like, is fighting back. And one of them, I think, uh, Reuters is doing something quite interesting where they're getting behind the story. So what they do is they publish a story, and then they'll go back and they'll have a look at. Uh, how they actually created that story and they'll put that kind of stuff online, right? And it's a quite clever idea. Now, perhaps only media hacks and uh, and students are the ones that will look at that. But there have to be ways that uh, we can actually sort of fight back and convince a public that's growing increasingly concerned about this. And I think the Cambridge Analytica story mm. you know, brought that to the fore. Mm. People don't want their personal details hacked. They don't want to feel that they're being manipulated online. So perhaps the answer is that we, uh, as a society, are going to just become better at spotting fake news.
1: I think so. And it's interesting to me that ca- the whole Cambridge Analytica uh, story was blown by a newspaper whose Indeed. proprietor 100 years ago was worried that radio would put it out of business. So it's a, it's a classic, it's a great uh, illustration of the, of the way in which traditional media have to adapt. Yeah.
0: And traditional media... Will still be here, right? I mean, what is your projection? You look forward sort of five years, ten years time? Will Twitter and Facebook still exist, and will mainstream media still exist? who
1: knows i mean I, I hope that mainstream media will still exist. I hope there will still be a group of professional people called journalists who are paid to make judgments on behalf of the public uh, and who will be will be trusted by you know a center of gravity of public opinion. I hope that 's certainly been the world that i 've lived in in my professional lifetime. It's not to say that we haven't made mistakes and been criticised and been lampooned often by uh, the public. I, I covered the 2014 independence referendum in Scotland and, and people were very angry about a lot of the things that happened on, on the BBC uh, and criticised us to this day uh, for that. But by and large, I think it remains... the The mainstream media to some extent, underpins the continued existence of a public square through which the public citizens will pass and encounter views and opinions that they don't like and which challenge their own um, assumptions about the world. It's called pluralism. And pluralism, the idea that there's more than one way to interpret events, more than one way to see the world, more than one set of values through which to view the world, is absolutely central to democratic life.
0: Do you, Are you concerned about the kind of echo chamber effect, the fact that on Facebook or on Twitter and social media, actually you can choose yeah. to like only the people that you agree with? And that does seem to be something that people have fallen, perhaps fallen into a trap, perhaps is too strong a way of putting it, but, you know, it's difficult to... Listen to views that you don't like, and you can simply swap them away. Yeah, you know we've we've we're entrenched at the moment in this country in a in a Brexit debate, but elsewhere, if you look at uh, America and Trump, it's something similar. And, and gun control is another thing in the states where you got these pro and anti sides, and it's quite easy then to only ever hear people who reinforce your own views.
1: Yeah, I think that's right, and and the fact that in both countries there was an assumption among left liberal um, uh, media establishment type people that Hillary Clinton would win and that Remain would win is an illustration of that because they were listening to their own very reasoned, very measured, very moderate um, points of view. It was absolutely plain to them that uh, the the, the, the Leave argument was based on lies. They thought it was obvious to everybody but they weren't listening to other big truths that were out there.
0: And this has really shaken up. It has shaken up the media in this country. It should. Um, and it should, exactly. And it has shaken it up in the US as well. Mm. Um, and, the, you know, the, the, it's a, it's almost like a dual blow. You've had Brexit, which has shaken up the media, the, the mainstream media very much, and, and perhaps made it less London-centric. I hope it has anyway. Mm. I think that probably is true. Um, and you've also got social media. Mm. Um, social media will... End up being regulated after this. Do you think? I am. My strong feeling is that this Cambridge Analytical might be this might be the moment um, that actually means that Mark Zuckerberg is not able to keep claiming that he's merely a publisher and that actually, you know, how it gets regulated and how all of that's, mm. that that mm. that happens is probably a much longer term thing. Mm. But the fact that it will happen is possibly more of a certainty than it was even six months ago.
1: I think the way we handle this as a society has got to catch up with the technology. The technology has marched very, very quickly, far ahead of the public's understanding of what that technology is capable of. And uh, whether it's parliamentary legislation, whether it's the European Union, I don't know what kind of regulation uh, is needed. I always stop short of public advocacy. I wouldn't call for any particular set of policies. But it's pretty clear that as a society, as a citizenry, we have to get on top of this now because it is corrosive. It's it's liberating in many ways. It's democratising in many ways. But it's also serving now to poison the well of democratic discourse.
0: Alan Little, thank you so much indeed for sharing your thoughts with us. Thank you. What a pleasure. The Rathbones Look Forward series
1: with Andrea Catherwood.